Yeah, let's let's get started. And um, I guess I will pray, even though I never know how to pray during these kind of times, but I'll pray anyway. Uh, so you guys pray in your own hearts, uh, asking God to open your heart to what he has to say, not necessarily what I have to say. So I'll pray. Father, we just thank you for this time and for the people who have um, taken the time out of their lives to listen, hoping to hear from you. And, um, you know, I, I just pray right now that as I speak, um, it will be more you than me. <laughs> um, and, um, but maybe it'll be both. And that's my hope also that the things that you've taught me will come through, uh, and what I have to say. And because your word, um, is not just, some ethereal thing out there in space but your word is a person the person of jesus your word always has to become uh incarnate uh first in jesus and then in us and so i just pray that um your word can be incarnate in me and and in people that are hearing this and everyone who is influenced by uh by all of the uh by all the people here we thank you because we know you can do stuff like that, and we uh, look forward to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so tonight the plan is to... Uh, um, I hope I'm okay mic-wise. Um, the plan is to uh, go over a bunch of uh, passages from the Bible, uh, mostly Old Testament. And uh, the idea is we're talking about knowing God and committing ourselves to God and and entering into a, a relationship that is as deep and as intimate as any relationship you'll ever enter into. Well, who is this God, right? I mean, if you were going to, if I was going to introduce you to a new friend, you would at least want to know, you know, why, why do you want me to know this friend and why, and what is this friend like? And is this friend going to make me feel really bad or, you know, am I going to enjoy this or, or are you just palming somebody off of me so you can get rid of them or something, right? You know, and, um, so, but, uh, so I want to, I want to give, I hope to give you guys a picture of, of what God is like and how he wants to relate to us. So we're going to talk about three things. The first is God's relational character or relational risks. And this is a, you know, I can hardly do this without being a little controversial. Um, but I'm not going to open this can of worms. I'm just going to say God takes risks. And the fact that that would be controversial, um, it my my view of God is that he enters into the mix or or what I call you know we we talk about Jesus I, I use the phrase diving into the mess um, Jesus dove into the mess of the human condition and went all the way to the bottom you know <laughs> and uh, and then you know got us out of it you know so that was that's risky God takes risks if it says, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Anyone who rejects him, um, it's a grief to him. It's, there's genuine loss. We'll see that. Uh, second, relationships with individuals. And these are like um, biblical um, uh, passages that describe 
how God related to particular individuals and not in the way that you usually think when it comes to God vis-a-vis individuals. We usually think of God as very domineering and you know God is sovereign and God does what he wants and doesn't check with anybody just says I'm going to do this and does it you know and what we find is that God is not like that all right so uh, we will see um, some of uh, that here and then finally we'll end up with something what I call relational progression and that is the idea that we start in in any relationship you start getting to know someone and you have no clue right you don't know anything about that person and um, I, I'm all I, I like to tell people that I uh, I will take people at face value as, until they convince me that I can't do that and uh, so hi there <laughs> you took your mask off I suddenly reckon uh, I don't I'm not sorry Jason, okay, but I do recognize the face. Cool, thank you for coming. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> yes, I used to lead Awana, believe it or not. Man, we packed out that room. We had kids come, we, anyway, we were the place to be on Friday night. Anyway, <laughs> if you were, what, third grade or something, or second grade, I forget, Sparkies, anyway. So, um, Okay, then relational progression. So you get to know somebody and it and you the relationship grows and changes, you know, and, and our relationship with God is like that. And it's in the Bible, and we'll see how that works. Okay. And and again, if you have any questions, just stop me and you know, raise your hand or and uh, I'll be really upset because I want to get through this. I'm no, just kidding. Please, please, don't let don't sit there and don't suffer in silence if you don't know what's going on. So, okay. Uh, so, the first one here. God as a risk taker. Is that legible? I can't see it from here. Is it yeah. readable? Okay. Well, maybe one of you guys could read it. Uh, Miu, how about you? <laughs> I'll just pick you. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh. <laughs> Okay, so we have, this is what you might call the honeymoon phase of a relationship where it's really nice, really sweet. It's really, you know, there is this feeling like, okay, you, you see a few warning signs here, right? They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offering to idol. Well, is that really? No, well, there's still some kind of sense that maybe not all is 100%, but it's, you know, maybe it'll get better, right? You know, all right. So God is invested because, you know, God is, he, he treats Israel like a child, okay? He's invested, he's committed, you know, and his heart, well, you'll see. Okay, um, let's see. Uh, Jason, you want to read this one? Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. 
They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria, believe so. That's right. Okay. Shall be their king because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall, raise, he shall not raise them up at all. Okay. Something has gone seriously wrong here. There's a sense of betrayal. There's a sense of they didn't, they didn't, whatever they were doing, they, they departed from the relationship. Now, it's interesting to remember that Hosea um, um, starts with God telling Hosea to uh, marry a prostitute. And um, and she keeps going, leaving. She has some. They have kids, but she keeps leaving, and he has to go fetch her again. You know, and and so I mean, if you were a prophet, you know, being a prophet is a tough job, right? So anyway, um, he he, um, uh, God is using this as a picture to to make concrete uh, the sense that, of betrayal that he experiences uh, in his relationship with Israel. Okay. All right, now God is just mad, right? Think about it, right? We're, we're talking now. You might say, "Well, well, God is like up there, and you know, sitting on his giant throne in heaven, and nothing bothers him, and just right." You know, no, that's not God. That's that's we have this. We 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 feel God. We feel like God is impenetrable or or impervious or something but but what we're seeing here is he's not like that watch uh who can really read tammy why don't you read this be emotional <laughs> i'm sorry put you on the put you on the spot well Go ahead, Tammy. I mean, and you. Well, wait, wait, wait. Do you want to do it, Jeremy? Okay. <laughs> I didn't think you would. <laughs> I know, I know. That's what I thought. Oh, okay. Go ahead, Tammy. <laughs> How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my brain anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. You hear that? You hear what it says about he's describing God's emotional state. Now you might say, well, God doesn't really have emotions like we do. Well, right. But there's something in God's character and personality that chorus that is describable in this way, you see. My heart recoils within me. All right, so here's God. He's ready to let him have it, right? You know, and you know, he said, "Okay, they've been they've betrayed me. They're they're doing horrible things like sacrificing their children to Moloch and you know all this kind of stuff. Horrible things, right? Uh, and that's just you know that's not counting the daily bad stuff they do: murder, violence, oppression, all this kind of stuff, right? And God's saying, "Man, I'm done with these people. I'm done with them." I, you know, and then something happens, right? How, you know, it's like, how can I give you up? How can I let go? I can't let go. I cannot 
hand them over. I can't destroy them. And my heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I mean, here, here, here is a nation, a, a, a people of God who have betrayed their, their God, okay? Like a, a, a woman abandoning her husband and going off and selling herself, right? That's the picture. And yet God says, ah, I can't let them go. I care too much. And then what's really funny, you read this, this verse 9. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. Now think about this. God is holy, right? Now see here again, we start, I hope you guys are, are hearing a little bit of cognitive dissonance over the normal way that people talk about God. God is a holy God and must punish sin, right? You've heard that kind of thing, right? I am, the, I am God and not a man, the holy one in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Wait a minute. <laughs> I'm a little confused here. Isn't he, isn't his, the fact that he's a holy God mean he's supposed to punish? But see, for him, this statement, the holy one, what is, what is it about him being the Holy One? It's that he is faithful. He, he has a character that is not changeable. Like just because they have, been, have betrayed the relationship, he will not do it. He will not betray the relationship. He's faithful to a relationship that is painful. One of the, there's, a, there's a word in the uh, uh, Old Testament um, it's chesed. It has that sound. So whenever somebody says it, stand back, especially during the days of COVID, right? Chesed, right? Probably infected all of you, right? <laughs> anyway, but it means, um, it's usually translated as loving kindness or mercy or something like that. It means the kind of love that bears the cost of a relationship. Okay. Now, have you ever been in a relationship that really hurt? <laughs> I think we all, well, probably. I mean, I, I assume that we all have. Um, and, and yet, you hung in there. Maybe it was foolish to do so, but you still hung in there. Or, or somebody did that for you, hung in with you when it really hurt, you know? Um, this is what this is the kind of love that characterizes God over and over again. Loving kindness. You'll see that word a lot. Loving kindness. God loves even when it hurts. Because that's what he's talking about here, right? This whole idea of, you know, I can't let you go. Even though it hurts, it hurts a lot. But, I mean, I have burning anger here, right? but I'm not going to execute it. I'm not going to, just again, destroy Ephraim. Um, you know, I am going to, I'm not going to come in wrath, uh, you know. So uh, let's read um, the last part. This is kind of the somewhat happy ending. Okay. Um, I'm sorry. Uh, Wenley, can you read the last part for us?
Okay, so the Lord, he's saying he's going to rescue them. So they're going to be dispersed, but he will rescue them, all right? So God is not going to give up on his people. His heart is still for his people, regardless of how painful it's been. Um, okay, so again, we, here's another one where we see um, a risk, uh, a, a risk how, how God loves in a risky way, and this is Jesus, okay? Um, Ashley, can you see that well enough to read it? Oh, good. Sure. Make you work. <laughs> Sorry. And as he was setting out on the journey, a man ran up and knocked and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept. Okay, I want you to look at verse 21. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Do we take that seriously? What do you think Jesus, what was Jesus's feeling about this guy? Now, there's something kind of kind of clunky about it, right? There's a guy who comes running up, you know. Um, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You know, this, there's a sense of, kind of, I don't know, just zeal and idealism, you know. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Like, who do you think I am, you know? I mean, um, well, there is a sort of implicit notion that if you're coming to me to answer that question, then you are, you know, you have, you are, in essence, he's saying you think that I know God well enough to answer. Uh, I'm not making this clear. Anyway, um, no one is good except God alone. So when you call me good, you're calling me God. All right? All right. We'll just, it's, it's between the lines though. So we don't have to worry about that. But the point is, then he goes and says, you know the commandments. And here's where the guy gets Jesus' attention. He tells them these various commandments. And, and the guy says, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Now, if you look up, look at that, you think to yourself, well, there's two things. Oh, okay. Hi there. There's two things. Um, one is, um, he, he, he's kept them all from his youth, which implies he's a serious guy, right? Well, the other thing is very peculiar. He still comes to Jesus and says, what do I need to do to get eternal life? Look, I've kept the commandments. What do I need? You know, wait, you know, you see, there's something that's weird. If he's kept the commandments, shouldn't he have a sense? Yeah, well, I'm going to have eternal life. But he, but he knows there's something more to it than that. I mean, so he's a serious guy. He, he, 
he's not just some, you know, random guy who comes running up to Jesus asking him weird questions. He, he, care, he really means it, okay? He really means it. And Jesus looks at him and says, hey, I got a live one here. And so he says, well, so first of all, it says he loved him. In other words, he, he, his heart went out to the guy. He thought, man, I, this guy, there's something about him. And so he makes him an offer. You lack one thing. Now, remember, he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, you lack one thing. Think about that, okay? Jesus is basically telling him, you have been looking for this all your life. You put a lot of effort into it. You kept the commandments. That's hard to do, right? You know, that could be costly at times. And you know it's not enough. And I'm here to tell you, you lack one thing. Go and sell all you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. What is Jesus offering the guy? Two things, treasure in heaven and the, to follow him, to be a disciple, to go with him. That's all Jesus has to offer, if you think about it, right? His presence, of course, being God, <laughs> you know, that's, that's quite a lot of presence, right? But, um, oh no, I just thought of a joke. Oh, well, forget it. <laughs> anyway, only ah, throw something at me. Thank you, thank you. I needed that. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, all right. So Jesus has just made him an offer. You know the old saying: "I he made me an offer, I couldn't refuse." Except he refuses it. He refuses it. Now that is incredible in and of itself. But see, you notice that Jesus put himself out there, right? He said, look, sell all you have. It'll be worth your while. And come follow me. That's Jesus offering himself. And the man turned him down. And then you think, okay, well, it's just, it's Jesus. He walked six inches off the ground. You know, nothing phases Jesus, right? Nothing, you know, he, he, he's... Life, you know, life is easy for Jesus, right? Well, I'm, well, we, we notice um, something here. Um, Daniel, you want to read this? Yeah. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Okay, a couple of things to notice here. Um, translators are so cowardly. They always, they always use weak words. It says, and the disciples were amazed at his words. It really says, the disciples were shocked at his words. In other words, they were stunned that he, they, he said that it's hard for rich people to get into the kingdom of heaven which tells you something about their mindset, but that's beside the point. The point is that Jesus says it twice. Think about it. First he says, he looks at his disciples and says, oh, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And then he looks at them again and he says, children, 
how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Why? What do you think is going on with Jesus there? You see, don't you see that he has had an emotional reaction there? He, he kind of looks at his, you know, you know G, basically what's happening here is Jesus was rejected and he felt it. So he looks at his disciples and says, well, at least you guys are, you know, at least I can look at you for comfort. You, you are following me. You are my children. You know, he calls them, it's a very endearing term, you know, children. I mean, after all, you know, they're, they're men. They're, maybe some of them are at least his age, right? But he sees them and he sees them and talks tenderly to them because it hurt his feeling. It, it hurt him. He felt he loved the guy and the guy walks away, you know. And so there's and, and Jesus not just grieved for himself, but he's also grieved for the guy. I remember one time um, I, there was this um, co-worker I had, a woman, and uh, um, we were talking, I, I was telling her about Jesus. And, and at one point, it's like I could feel it. I felt like this is the time. And it was kind of like she was feeling, I could tell she was feeling something new, but then she turned away. And I just felt, it, it, I felt, you know, like, you've, you've, what are you doing, <laughs> you know? Of course, it, like, about five years later, she eventually became a Christian, thank God, you know. But at that moment, it really bothered me that she had basically said, I don't want this, you know. And it scared me because I thought, well, are you turning your back on God forever, you know? You really want to do that? Well, she didn't, thank goodness, right? So, but the point is, at that moment, I felt a grief, not for myself, but but for her, because I felt like you're the one who's losing out here. So I think Jesus had both going on. He loved the man, and because he loved him, it mattered to him that the man turned away. And it mattered both for his own, you know, the fact that he, he cared, and the fact that he the, he was grieved that the man turned away, okay? The point of all this is for us to look at God as connecting with us on both, I don't know, a, what you might call a spiritual level and an emotional level, you know? The Bible talks about God's emotions all the time, okay? And, and um, in the Old Testament is full of it, all right? Well, here's some more. Um, let's see, Lawrence, right? Can you can you see that well enough to read it? Can you read it for us? Maybe too far. Now look at this, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered your children together 
as the hen gathers her brood under her wings. I mean, can you think of a more tender image than that? And, and then, and you were not willing. You know, God is trying tenderly to embrace um, uh, the children of Jerusalem. And they just don't want it. You know, so again, you see that, the, that you know, we, I, we go through life and we probably all experience rejection at one time or another. Um, I, my, you know, Edwin, who uh, he must, I, he mentioned his sister uh, and some of her struggles. Well, his sister said that she gets rejected every day because she's an actress. And so she goes out and auditions, and she gets rejected and rejected and rejected, you know? And, and you know, she was saying, why? Why doesn't God give me more parts, you know, <laughs> right? But, you know, you think about it. You think, okay, we all experience this rejection all the time, probably, at one level or another. Well, we think, well, God, what about God? You know, does he know what I'm going through? And yet we see here, God experiences rejection. In fact, um, um, we're told that Jesus was despised and rejected, a, uh, a man acquainted with grief. God, ex like I said I, uh, before when I said the phrase, God dove into the mess in the person of his son, Jesus. So he got it all. He, oh, he knows what it's like to be rejected. He knows what it's like to be despised and betrayed and you know unfairly uh, condemned you name it right uh, okay let's look at one more like this um, Carrie are you there still okay I guess not okay um, Mia you want to read this one for us and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you, and surround you, and hem you in on every side, and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Well, Jesus comes to Jerusalem and starts crying, you know. Uh, what? <laughs> I mean, he weeps over the city. And, I mean, again, you know, I wish, there were, I wish they would use a stronger word there instead of wept. Because it sounds so safe and so sanitary, right? He wept over the city. He cried. He sobbed. He, you know, he... Right. And and, um, you know, he think about it. Think about Jesus. Let's say you're one of the disciples and you're walking along and all of a sudden you're, you're coming to Jerusalem and and there Jesus sees the city and starts crying. Wait, <laughs> what's going on here? <laughs> you know, and and yet he and then he says, if only if only you had known the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden. And so it's kind of like he's saying, look, you, you, you kept turning your back. You kept rejecting this. You kept rejecting me. And you won't, you won't get it anymore. You won't understand. 
And so, and so Jerusalem will be torn down, not one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation, because you did not see your Messiah when, when he came, because he didn't come with violence. You know, he didn't come in the expected way. He was supposed to come and raise armies and wipe out the Romans, right? You know, and, um, but that wasn't his style, <laughs> if I can put it that way. Um, and so as a result, they couldn't figure it out. And they didn't think he was the Messiah. A weeping Messiah or, you know, a, a Messiah who dies on the cross? No way, you know. He's supposed to be triumphant and victorious. Well, we all know how that ended, right? Okay, so that, that, the, idea, the point of doing this is to show that God uh, takes risks in relationships. And sometimes, all right, all right, think about this. When Jesus wept over Jerusalem, did he mean it? Do you know what I'm asking? Again, like I said earlier, the notion that God takes risks is controversial because it seems to say that God takes chances. He doesn't necessarily know how it's going to turn out. And so did Jesus mean it when he wept over Jerusalem or was he just play acting? I don't think he was play acting. I think that Jerusalem could have known, could have received him when he came. That was a possibility. They just didn't do it. You know, maybe it was a very slim possibility. I don't know. I mean, I God knows better than I do. But he was there was a when Jesus offered to that rich young ruler, I don't, that that man, come follow me. He could have accepted. He could have done it. It wasn't just Jesus. It wasn't that Jesus made this kind of fake offer. Oh, I know he's going to turn me down. I know he's he's too locked up with his riches and all that. But I'll make the offer, and then now it's all his fault. But you notice it says Jesus loved him. Do you? I mean, was it fake? No, it wasn't fake. Okay, it was real. There are real possibilities going on here, and God enters into these possibilities where He takes the same kind of risks we take when we enter into relationships. Okay, so when you go through tough times in a relationship. You have to see that God um, knows what you're going through because God has been rejected. Like it says in the Bible, Jesus was despised and rejected. You know, he suffered relationally. And then as we saw from the Hosea passage, God suffers relationally. That's just one example of the many places where um, uh, it says that God suffered relationally. Okay, uh, any questions about that? About this, this idea of relational risk? So, so the reason for telling you this is so you get a picture of who God is. It's not just to, you know, do a kind of a, uh, you know, it's, these are, this is not, obviously there's a lot of emotion here. There's a lot of nitty gritty, dare I say. God is suffering for our sake because of us because of the cost of our of the relationships that that uh, he enters into okay 
That's the kind of God I'm pointing, I'm trying to point you guys at. I'm, I'm encouraging you to come close to this God, to seek this God, you know, to chase him down. And I, I mean, he's chasing you. Really, the thing, it's like, it's, there's a saying about, um, uh, how's that? A, a guy chases a girl until she catches him. Um, well, that's the way it is with God. We, ch we chase God until he gets us, you know. We seek him, and then we find that he's been seeking us all along. He's been there, you know. He's been there opening the way for us to, to find him. So be that person who seeks God until he gets you, until he finds you, you know. Um, chase him down. Waste however much time in your life. You, you, you guys are, you know, you're not that... You, you, if you have not figured out what life is all about yet, I really would say be willing to waste as much time as necessary to find out if God is real and worth following, you know. And as Christians, if I'm, I'm talking to, you know, people who may or may not be Christian, but if you're a Christian, um, I'm, I'm, what I'm trying to encourage you to understand here is the kind of relationship God wants to have with you, okay? The, the fact that God is... Uh, risking himself in entering into a relationship with you. And we can grieve the Holy Spirit. We can make God feel bad, you know? And, and we're told not to do that. Now, on the other hand, like in any relationship, we can also make God rejoice, right? God rejoices over repentance. He rejoices over someone who draws close to him. And, uh, and he, you know, if, if anyway... I'll go to the next thing, because then it becomes, um, some of this becomes clearer. Okay, so relationships with individuals, that means you. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, so we have Abraham, God treats him as a peer. So with God, we have respect and friendship with Abraham. With Moses, Moses changes God's mind. Okay, this is what the Bible says. So God is affected by Moses and flexible, okay? Job stands up to God. Well, everybody gets the book of Job wrong, except me. <laughs> no, I'm just, no, I mean, I mean there are, I'm, I'm, other people have this view as well, but it's not common. Most people have a, a kind of a, anyway, Job is a hard book, I admit. Uh, it's an incredible work of art, and I'll talk a little bit about it, but, most people misunderstand it, especially the part at the end where God shows up. They think that God is bullying Job when that's the last thing God is doing. Anyway, God appreciates and affirms the one who has fought the good fight. Uh, and then Jonah, authenticity with God. And God respects authentic response even when it is misguided. You know, um, each of these sh examples uh, shows how God enters into true mutual relationships with people okay now, so the first one genesis 18 this is a really well-known uh passage it's crucial it's a crucial passage but what's really fascinating here is at this point god treats abraham like a peer and you'll see what i mean as i read um uh, 17 to 33 the lord said shall i hide from abraham what i am about to do seeing that abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation 
and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, or judgment, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Okay, so what we see there is God is saying to himself, I gotta... I can't just go and do whatever I was planning on doing. I've got to talk it over with Abraham first. Think about that. Right? Who do you, who do you talk things over with before you do them? Do you, you know, if, if you're going to go and, I don't know, buy a new car, and you have a three-year-old child, do you talk it over with your three-year-old and say, uh, what do you think? What kind of car should we, you know, probably not, right? You, you know, but you would talk it over with your husband or your wife, you know, depending, right? You would say, you know, we need to talk this over. What kind of car do we want to get? Do we want to get an SUV? Do we want to get a hybrid? Whatever, right? You know, well, and you do that to someone that you think has an equal say in what you're about to do, right? So a God is treating Abraham as someone who has a say in what he's about to do. And that should surprise you, Okay. And of course, I have to I have to show you the rest of it because it's it's kind of amazing. Um, okay, so uh, then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down and see to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. Now, I'm I will just leave the weirdness there without comment. Just point it out. That's weird. Okay? You read it carefully. That's weird. All right? Can anybody figure out why it's weird? <laughs> anyway. What's weird about that? All right. I said I would do it without comment, so I'll keep my word. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. So there, there's the Lord and two men. Okay? Well, actually, the two men were angels. And then there was the Lord. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Okay, Abraham's not going to let God. So Abraham told him, or God told Abraham, this is what I'm going to do, Abraham. And Abraham said, well, not so fast, not so fast. You know, he doesn't come right out and say it, but then, he, it's, then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Now, come on. Is that any way to talk to God? <laughs> right? You know, suppose, suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do judgment? In other words, before Abraham, before God can wipe him out, he has to he has to sort him out. Before he can wipe him out, he has to sort him out. Okay, <laughs> you know that old saying. Sorry, this is I shouldn't. It's very tasteless. Sorry, kill them all and let God sort him out. Have you have you probably have heard that say? Have you heard that saying? Yeah, yeah. So the point being that, you know, God's the one who's supposed to sort these people out. He's not just supposed to. He's we do the kill them all. He does the sort them out, right? You know. Anyway, Abraham is complaining that God is not 
sorting them out before he wipes them wipes them out and he says that's what he means it doesn't shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just is not really a correct translation shall not the judge of all the earth do judgment judge them okay don't just wipe them out judge them first then wipe them you know that's right you know it's like that old joke about you know okay we're gonna we're gonna hang them hang these men no 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 trial first then hang them right you know well that's that's what he's saying and and the lord said if i find at sodom 50 righteous in the city i will spare the whole place for their sake jaw drops you mean god actually listened to abraham god said okay hey you know what there may be you know thousands of people here who are you know scum of the earth right but if there are 50 righteous i'll spare them all because you asked me abraham well that's weird i mean okay fine let's go let's go now this is where it gets funny to me anyway abraham answered and said behold i have undertaken to speak to the lord i who am but dust and ashes suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking will you destroy the whole city for lack of five now notice how it went from 50 to five this is a very clever uh, uh, so so there is a um i don't know have any of you ever watched babylon five all right so so there is this one time where there are these ambassadors and one of the ambassadors says to his assistant i want you to go and do the negotiations for me and then he says, whatever you do, don't give away the home world, you know. And so I'm thinking if I were to if I were to bargain with Abraham, I'd probably end up giving away the, you know, everything because he's very clever. You know, um, he's a good bargainer here. He goes from he, he's no longer talking about 50. He's only talking, God, it's only five people, you know. OK, God says and uh, and he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. And again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. So he's going by fives, right? For the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. Ha ha. Now I'm going by 10, right? You know, um, he answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this one. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. So what you have there is a genuine interaction. God says, This is what I'm going to do. And Abraham, and first of all, the fact is God told abraham that he was going to do it right that's that's a big thing god didn't just go and say okay yeah i heard these people are really really bad i'll just wipe them out first he talks it over with abraham abraham really means something to god not only that and so you know to prove how much abraham means to god that he allows abraham to do this bargaining session with him okay let's understand this is a model of prayer okay it's a weird model of prayer i mean i i don't know exactly how often 
this would work, if you know what I mean. Do we go and kind of bargain with God? I don't know. But, um, you know, why not? Why not enter into some kind of thing with God where we say, God, this is... Because after all, Paul says, um, I have no anxiety about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Okay? Now, we know that God knows what we need, but it says, let your requests be made known to God. It also says that, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. You see, so, so God wants us to be participants in what he's doing. This is an example. It's a rather painful example because we're talking about destroying cities, right? Nevertheless, God takes Abraham's input before he does it, okay? All right, let's take uh, let's look at John 15 9, uh, 9 through 15. This is a corresponding New Testament passage or a cor <laughs> that's probably overstating it. Anyway, this is a New Testament passage which has some of the same ideas. Jesus says, <clears throat> um, as just as the Father has loved me, so also have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, literally instructions, you will abide in my love just as I keep the commandments of my Father and abide in his love. I tell you this, that my joy might abide in you and your joy be full. I, 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 it's not, I don't, I'm not focusing on that, but I just want you guys to remember this is all about joy. Okay, We tend to think of God and Christianity and all this as, as kind of well, first of all, dull and boring. And I honestly, if you if you have come to feel that Christianity is dull and boring, oh, I'm so frustrated when that happens to people. You know, um, I think that that anybody who convinces you that Christianity is dull and boring, there's a well, there's a special place somewhere for that. <laughs> anyway, but anyway, don't. But but really. It's all about joy, and it comes up so often. Joy, joy, joy. Where were you when I created the universe? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. You know, you get that amazing picture of the creation of the universe. All about joy and beauty. All about beauty. Beauty will save the world, you know. Like, um, anyway. Uh, Enough of that. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Notice the just as. Just as the Father has loved me, so also I have loved you. Just as I keep the commandments of my Father and abide in his love, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. So I reverse that. Um, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. So Jesus is showing patterns. These patterns are relative to God. That is, just as the Father has loved me, so, I, so in the same way I loved you. Just as I keep the commandments of my Father in the same way and, and abide in his love. If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. So it's the it, repeated pattern that is based on the Father. Okay. In other words, our relationship with Jesus is founded, is identical, or has an identity, I don't know, what's the best way to put it, is, is, is identical, I'll just use identical, that's the wrong word, but is identical with Jesus' relationship with the Father, okay? 
It's the same relationship. It's the same thing. It works the same way. Okay. Um, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. The Father loves the Son. And just as the Father loves the Son, the Son loves us. Just as the Son loves us, we are to love one another. Okay? So there is a what I call a spiritual direction here. Because a lot of times people think it's an echo. You know, God loves us, therefore we love God. We, we, we have this kind of echo back to God. But that's not what we're, we're taught. There are, well, yeah, of course you love God back. But we, we lose sight of the fact that a crucial aspect of this is the outward, the flowing outward. Just as he has loved us, we should let it flow out to one another. You see, not just back, but out, you see. And that, that ability, that, that, that flow kind of validates the fact that we are experiencing his love. If we love one another, that shows, and that's what it says in 1 John, it shows that we are conscious of God's love. We're experiencing God's love because we love one another. That shows it. It isn't, the fact that we love one another is not God's love directly, right? It, but it shows that we are participating in. We're, we're playing God's game here, you see. We're playing God's game, which is to love, okay? I'm not going to talk about what love means. There's, I could do that, but I won't do it now. Okay, um, nobody, well, it says it right here. Nobody has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Again, that word command is instruct, okay? It's not as coercive as we tend to think in terms of command, right? Command, do it or else, you know, but it's rather... This is what I, you know, we're allowing Jesus to speak into our lives, you know. We take his advice. We listen seriously to what he says, you know. Um, uh, he is an important guidance and source of direction for us, you see. More so, you know, as we come to know him better, we trust him more and more to the point where when he says something, we trust that more than what anybody else would say, okay. And that's what he's talking about here. But it's not something that you just, I mean, there is an element of, of trusting him so that when he tells you something you don't understand, you just, you know, you just make sure you know what he's telling you and then you just do it even if you don't agree with it. You know, many people, much of Christianity goes against the flow of our culture, okay? Um, I could I, I could go on and on about the many ways in which our uh, Christianity is countercultural. Okay, so who are you going to believe? <laughs> you know, are you going to believe uh, the media? Are you going to believe the politicians? Are you going to believe you know this, that, and the other, or are you going to believe Jesus? That's really the question that is posed every day for Christians. Who are you going to believe? And who are you going to believe? Who tells you who you are? You know. That's a whole nother can of worms I won't open up now. Okay, now here's where it, here's the crucial point. I no longer call you slaves because a slave does not know what his Lord is up to. Instead, I call you friends because I have made known to you everything I have heard from my Father. This is, so, so Jesus at one point says, the Father has given me everything I have, I've got from the Father. The Father has given me all things. 
Well, what did he do with it? He gave it to his friends. He has laid all his cards on the table. He has not hidden anything from his friends. That's you and me and others who are, who are uh, his, his disciples, right? And the, the amazing thing is he says, I don't call you slaves anymore. Now we would say, of course, I want to serve God. I want to be, I want to do what God wants. I want to submit myself to him. And I want to, you know, yield myself to him. But he says, great, do that. But don't do it as a cringing slave. Do it as a friend. Because that's what I call you. And who gets to call who what, right? Isn't it God that gets to set the terms, right? You know? If I say, oh, I'm going to just be nothing but a slave. And of course, many, pe many people have said that. And God says, well, fine, but I'm going to call you a friend, you see, because I tell you what I'm up to. Now, think about that. You see, so many of us are saying, well, we shouldn't try to understand what God's up to. And Jesus here says, I've made known to you everything I have heard from my father. Who are you going to believe? <laughs> you know, Jesus or, you know. I mean, it doesn't mean that right here and now we understand everything about God or everything Jesus has to offer us. But he is opening himself up. This is the sign of friendship, right? You open yourself up to the other person. You tell, you show yourself to the other person. Reveal yourself, right? And, and you know, that's not easy because it implies, you know, transparency implies vulnerability, right? Have you ever told somebody something that was really hard, really on your heart, really struggling with and had them walk out the door? I have. I mean, you know, it's like, okay, you know, you can, you can be on, you know, you can be transparent, you can be vulnerable and they walk right out the door. Okay, fine. <laughs> you know, but I mean, you see, that's the thing. Being vulnerable, being transparent is being vulnerable. God is vulnerable or is transparent with us. And he does so so that we can be transparent with him. We can be vulnerable with him because he's safe. He's safe in that he will never abandon us, okay? And so he reveals himself completely in Jesus. When you see Jesus, like he says elsewhere, uh, Philip comes up to Jesus and says, show us the Father and we'll be happy. And Jesus says, have I been around you for so long you still don't recognize me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Whoa, that's uh, you know pretty shocking to say, right? But in other words, through Jesus, we know the Father. The visit, as, as um, John says at the beginning of the book, no one has seen God. Jesus, the only, uh, the, I'm not quoting it right, the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father has made him known. That is Jesus, the Word who became flesh. So this is what Jesus is all about. This is why we're Christians, not just God believers. We are Christians because we know God through Jesus. And we know, you know, we see what Jesus has done and so on through reading the, the accounts of him in the Gospels. Okay, and it's important then that those accounts be um, uh, reliable, you know, which is why some people ask that question, are the accounts reliable? Um, and there are good reasons to believe that they are, okay? So that, but then it all boils down to the fact that we see Jesus and then through Jesus we see God, okay? And, and you know, you just, 
Anyway, okay. So, so Jesus, God through Jesus is calling us his friends. Okay, that friend of God appellation is used a couple of times in the Bible, like for Abraham and I think for Moses. Friend of God, you know. All right, you know, I'm not going to have time to do... Oh, boy. Um, I'm going to skip this Moses one. I, it's a good one, and God really does change his mind. God's going to wipe out Israel, but Moses says, not so fast. <laughs> let me. Uh, God says, let me alone. Get out of my way. I'm going to wipe them out, and then I'll make you a great nation. And he's, no, 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 don't do that, please. You know. And God says, okay, I won't. But you're not going to like it. <laughs> but anyway, and that's kind of true. So anyway, um, the Lord relented. So I, it's a good one, but there are ones I like more. So I like this one, but I like a couple of others more. I want to get to them. Okay, um, Job. Ah, yes, the book of Job. <laughs> Very, uh, how many of you have read the book of Job through from, yeah, a couple of, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty challenging book, isn't it? It's a, it's a, it's an epic poem, okay? For those of us who are fans of poetry, you know that epic poems, um, are the most demanding of the reader, right? You know, how do you hold it all together? How do you, how can you focus your understanding through this huge long poem, right? Um, I'll, I'm going to give you a brief overview of Job, and um, then I'll explain how this how this works. Um, so, so the what Job is Job is remarkable from a literary point of view because it has what uh, a literary double image, okay? And what I mean by that is um, there is the scene in heaven where Satan goes up to God and says, you know, uh, I bet I can get Job to curse you. And God says, give it, give it a try. See what happens, you know. So there's this cosmic wager going on, right? And so you, the reader, know about the cosmic wager, right? And so all through the book, in the back of your mind, you know that there is this cosmic wager going on. But, of course, Job doesn't know about it. Job's friends don't know about it. Okay, And so everything is in the light of this cosmic wager, but it, the wager only makes sense if Job doesn't know about it, right? If Job knew about it, he would say, oh, God's, God's betting on me. I'll, I'll try really hard. You know, I, I get it. I get it why this is happening. But he doesn't. And so, uh, so Job is, is saying, what is going on here? And uh, his friends are all saying, Job, you did something wrong. Come on, admit it. You did something wrong. <laughs> and Job says, what? Tell me what I did wrong. Tell me. And and they and they speculate, you know, well, you did this, maybe you did that, maybe you maybe you oppressed the poor, maybe you, you know, did this, that, and the other thing. And and Job says, Yeah, you guys don't know what you're talking about. And it goes on like that. And Job Job really I mean, he's just so frustrated. He, you know, he has this one there's this one section where he says, uh, man, I'm 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 like an owl in the wilderness, you know. I think I think it's something about being an owl in the wilderness. Uh, my friends avoid me in the street. My, you know, 
my wife thinks my breath stinks. You know, literally it says something. My wife, my breath stinks. You know, so I mean, just everything. And you know, what's interesting there is, and he says, but I know, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that I will see him in the latter day. I'll see him. Okay, so Job has something going on there. Not quite sure exactly what he means by that. But, and then what we find is that Job keeps saying, if only God would show up. If only my accuser would show up and I could ask him what's going on. I could lay my case before him. I would lay my, I would wear my, my, accusation like a robe you know i would wear it everywhere i go god what are you doing explain yourself come and and tell me and then it's interesting that he says at one point he says even if i was right god could prove me wrong even god could make my own mouth even if i'm right god could make my own mouth condemn me that's how amazingly powerful God is. But I don't care. I still want God to show up. You see, now this is amazing. This is honestly amazing faith, isn't it? Now, at the same time, Job is going through, you know, hell on earth, right? He's going through just tremendous suffering. His kids have been killed. All of his wealth is gone. You know, everything is, you know, it's just ah, all wrong, all bad. And he, you know, he's got boils all over him, and he, you know, um, anyway. So, so he goes on saying, "Oh, if only God would show up." So then this guy Elihu wanders in, the, or actually he's been there all along, but he's young, and so he didn't want to say anything. But finally, you know, he's kind of a hothead, and he says, "You know, I feel like I, I feel like a bottle of Coke that someone shook. You know, it's gonna pop out. You know." Well, he uses a different analogy, but it's the same idea. It's going to blow out, right? You know, and and so he says, you know, I'm I don't care. I'm young, I know, but you guys don't know what you're talking about. Nobody's been able to convince Job, so I'll do it. You know, someone's got to do it. You know, and so and what he says is, you know, God is by definition right. God, you will not ever be able to con convict God of being wrong. It just, it not only is it, not only is it, you know, not possible. It's just, it doesn't even make sense. How could God possibly be wrong? You know, and besides, God's in heaven and doing lightning and all this amazing stuff, and you can't, you you get, you know, you you die of heat when the wind blow when the wind stops blowing. You can't control anything. You know, God is so much beyond you that you guys can't even talk on the same level. How can you possibly confront God? How? It just doesn't work. It's like an ant trying to confront a human being. The ant can wave his little antenna all he wants, but no one's going to take any notice of him. That's what God is to you. Why are you even trying? God is right, you are wrong, but it, you will never be able to ask him about it or understand what he is saying, what he's doing. In other words, this is what I call the nihilistic answer. Okay? There is no way you'll ever get justice from God except by just admitting that you're wrong and God is right by definition, okay? 
Okay, now the interesting thing to me is that that is put in the mouth of Elihu, okay? Not God. Okay, when God... So here, so this guy Elihu has been, you know, he's got the longest chunk. I, mean, I think it's seven chapters or something. And, and then guess what happens? Okay, he's just said it's hopeless. You can't talk with God. God will never, you, you'll never understand what God's doing. He'll never show up. He's up there. You're down here. No, there's no, what? there's no, you're not even the same kind of thing. You can't talk with God because he's a different plane of existence entirely. And then guess what happens? God shows up, you know? And that's the, that's the amazing, ironic twist after Elihu has just proved that God can never, you can never talk with God, you can never understand God, he will never explain himself, he shows up. Now, okay, okay. so you think, okay, now God's here, and now he's going to let Job answer, ask him a lot of questions and give him the answers. Except again, you know, Job, Job is such a, the book is such a, uh, well, it's again an ironic twist where Job is saying, if only I could ask God what's going on. If only I could confront him. And, and, you know, and then what happens? God shows up and starts asking Job questions. You see, that's a twist. Now, a lot of people think, oh, Job, God's just bullying Job and saying, look how powerful I am. But that's not what's going on here. What God is doing is expanding Job's vision, okay? Because one of the things that we that happens when we suffer is we get this tunnel vision, and all we can do is see our suffering. We don't see anything. Our, our whole life is pain, and we focus on that pain, and we don't see anything else. And the most important thing that God does right there, well, there are a lot of things that God does, but he, he blows open uh, Jonah's tunnel vision. He said, where, like I said earlier, where were you when I created the universe, when I laid the foundation of the earth? And then he says, when all the sons, of, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Just this incredible beauty. Do you, don't you know? Don't you know? You look up and you see it. You see the, you see the product. Can you imagine the beginnings, right? And then, and Job says, oh, sorry, God. I, I've, already, I've already said everything I'm going to say. Well, God, so, so you think, okay, Job is overwhelmed by God. God won't have it. He says, I came all this way, you're going to answer. You cannot just stand there and say, I'm not going to talk. I'm going to just shut up. No way. You, I will ask and you answer and you better do it. You know, I mean, so you see what God is doing is he is saying, have the courage of your convictions, Job. You wanted me to show up? Here I am. Now talk to me. You see? Now this is the exact opposite of the way people look at it. They're all saying Job is just kind of overwhelmed by God and doesn't have anything to say. And, you know, and, and you know, God bullies him into submission. Wrong. God confronts him, but he confronts him, again, like I say, as a peer. God wants Job to talk with him. Job is, has, has been, you know, through a lot, 
and maybe is worn down, but God says, let's, you know, um, uh, rise to the occasion, Job. Talk with me. And so God, and, and then so God says, look, he talks about Leviathan and Behemoth. He says, look at these cosmic forces that I am dealing with. Creation is always on the verge of, of collapsing into chaos, but I've got it. Do you think that your suffering is beyond my control when I can tame Leviathan and I can tame Behemoth? I can tame the sea. I can tame the earth. Do you think that your suffering is beyond me? That it, is, that it has gotten away from me? Do you think you are beyond my ability to come to grips with? See? And finally, finally, Job says, oh, Okay, God. I Now, he, he does repent. But what does he repent of? He says, well... I didn't know what I was talking about. I admit it. I didn't know what I was talking about. So there, there is that. There is that sense. God is so much bigger than I was thinking, you know? There's so much more to him. There's so much more going on. I didn't know. I'd only heard about God. Now I see him face to face. Notice it. This is so important to understand what's going on with Job. I only heard of him. Now I see him face to face. Therefore, I repent in dust and ashes. Because now I've seen it. I, I have confronted God. I really, he showed up and he showed me and he told me and now I get it. I didn't know what I was talking about. Now I know. Okay, so then, and here's our passage. So you think, okay, well, yeah, Job admitted he was wrong. He admitted he repented, right? So obviously, you know, the friends must have been right, or Eliud must be right. No. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and, you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right. Now this is a mistranslation. Um, sorry about this. Um, I, I spent a fair amount of time looking into this because I saw somebody say this was improperly translated. And so I did some research in, in it. And I'm convinced that the person is right. This, this is not properly translated in most versions. Literally, it says, My anger burns against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken to me firmly, or you have not stood up to me as my servant Job has. So in other words, the friends were just basically um, saying, well, God is, ooh, God is really strong and scary. We better make sure that you know, we say the, the right thing about God, the correct thing, the politically correct thing, so to speak, about God. Because otherwise, you know, he might do to us what he did to Job, something like that. Job stood up to God, and God wanted that. He wanted someone who would stand up who would talk back, who would be honest, not just blow off God, which is what he was tempted to do, curse God and die, you know, but rather be honest to God and say, look, this is what I'm experiencing. This is what I'm feeling. Where are you, God? Why? You know, explain yourself to me. I want to know. Even if you could prove me wrong, I still want to know. And God said, 
Um, he has not, you have not spoken, you have not stood up to me as my servant Job has. Therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourself, yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray to you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not stood up to me as my servant Job has. You have not had the courage of your convictions. You are fools. You notice he said the word folly there. You are fools. You think that I didn't know what you were doing? You think I didn't know that you were, you know, you were trying to shade things in my direction? You know, why do I need someone to shade things in my direction? I don't need that, right? I want honesty. I want you to tell me what you really, I want you to stand up to me if that's the way you feel. Because I, I can work with that. I can't work with people who are kind of, uh, who go with the wind. You know, if you bend with the wind, hey, I can't work with that. You know, I, I, I don't know where you are. I can't, I can't get a hold of you. Job, I could get a hold of. Job, when I told Job what I told him, he, you know, he got it eventually you know but you guys where are you you see all right does that make sense you get what i'm i'm saying there job went through all this turmoil but he stood up to god he kept he and he he believed in god he said if only i could talk it over with god it'll all make sense and he was right you see in the end even though he was wrong he was right you see so uh what time is it okay i've kind of talked about jonah before um well let's see i i did want to show the correspondence between jonah and the father and the older brother um but i think i'll do the relational progression one um I would rather do this one, so I'll skip the Jonah one. Um, it's it's very similar to Job because um, what we see with Jonah, well, Jonah is a lot less um, polished. <laughs> Jonah is just angry, you know, and yet God can even work with that because it's honest, okay? And And honestly, the point of this is to tell you guys that it's safe to be angry with God as long as you're honest. You know, you don't come at God and 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 um, and be angry with Him as something you know as a way to get away from Him. I, I had a friend who a long time ago who was asking me all these questions about God, and I said, "Look, if you want to get away from God, you're working way too hard. You know, just just leave. You know." And he said, oh, yeah. And then he started, he realized that he'd been kind of, and, and he actually turned out to, you know, come back to his faith in a way, you know, by just realizing, I'm kind of trying to get away from God. If you're just trying to get away from God with your anger, you're shaking your fist and finding a reason to think that God is not, you know, good or something. Oh, you know, I what can you do? But see, um, what we saw, what we see with Jonah is um, the honesty that tells God, and and then waits for God to. I don't know. What am I trying to say here? All right, I'm I'm 
we don't really know how Jonah turns out because it ends with a question. But the point is that God speaks to Jonah and explains himself to Jonah, even though uh, Jonah is really angry because he's honest about it. All I'm trying to say is don't try to fool God. You know, when you pray to God, you know, it talks about presenting yourself as a living sacrifice before God. Be there. Be there in who all the reality of who you are that you can possibly bring. We're, we fool ourselves. We fool God. We try. We fool one another. But do your best, right? Try not to fool God. Try to be honest. And then as time goes on, you'll find you'll probably get more and more comfortable doing that if never totally comfortable because God's scary but but that's where I want to go with this relational progression idea um, the idea here is that a relationship has stages it evolves over uh, as we experience it uh, and it's and the with God it starts off the question of the fear of the Lord okay this is the fear of the Lord when you first meet God I, I, this friend I was telling you about who eventually became a Christian after many years, when she first, um, she, she read a book called Mere Christianity, and she said, after she read the book, she said, that, gave, that book gave me nightmares. I said, oh no, there really is a God, okay? Well, think about that. I mean, that's a perfectly reasonable response. You mean there is an all-powerful being that I am responsible before? You mean there's somebody watching every move that I make and judging every move that I make? Wow, what am I gonna do? I, I, can't, I can't live with that, right? That's scary. It says, it says in one place in the Bible, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, right? And so that's what happened with Israel. So um, Israel gathered before Mount Sinai and uh, fear of the Lord, just plain afraid. So it says, now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, well, natural disaster here, right? You know, that's what it looks like. The people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. God is a scary guy, and we, you know, when God had said all this stuff, so a lot of people don't realize it, but the Ten Commandments, you know, the Ten Commandments that were given at Mount Sinai, they were spoken directly by God to the people. So it's called the Ten Words of God, is literally, more literally. And so God spoke them in the midst of all the thunder and lightning and trumpet and all that. And the people said, oh boy, we never want to have that happen to us ever again. <laughs> Please, Moses, you know, you talk to God and we'll talk to you, but don't, you know. And so, and, and this actually grieved God. This was not what God wanted. He wanted a direct relationship. Um, I, I don't know if you, did you, you like, you like the Chronicles of Narnia, right? Do you remember the part where Aslan shows up and um, there's a dwarf when, in Prince Caspian and, and he tells the dwarf to come and the dwarf, you know, 
is so scared and then he picks him up and juggles him right you know and then he says shall we be friends son of earth remember that i don't know if you, I, that's very vivid in my mind just that whole sense of of the overwhelmingness of god and yet his his question shall we be friends you know and and so that's what god wanted okay god wanted a direct relationship but the people could not handle it okay uh, they were afraid. They didn't. They didn't rise. To, they didn't get up and walk towards Aslan instead of running away. You know, they ran away, and so there was no question of shall we be friends? Okay. All right. So that's where you start. Fear of God, just plain afraid. Okay. Well, then you start to have um, the idea that the we start to have fear as taking God seriously. Okay, if you're afraid of God and just run away, well, that isn't really helping you. But if you say, okay, well, who is this God anyway? I need to take him seriously. So it says, the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. So there's something beyond fear going on here. You fear, the people that fear him, this is literally the word fear there is literally fear, like, um, I don't know the Hebrew word, but the, you know, phobia, phobos, in Greek it's phobos. And um, anyway, um, but there's more to it. There, there is, the Lord is actually taking pleasure in those who take him seriously, in those who hope in his love, okay? And then Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So the fear of the Lord is a good place to start, <laughs> you know, but the secret, the secret is, <laughs> the secret is you don't end there, okay? You don't end there, and I'll tell you in a minute. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. So basically taking God seriously, it'll, it'll serve you well, okay? Um, you get wisdom from God, you know, by by hearing his word and then, you know, going with it, letting it speak into your life, letting it shape the way you think about life and about yourself and everything else. Um, it's good. It will it will serve you well. OK, and then you start to come to something beyond the ordinary sense of fear. Ephesians 5.21 says, Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Again, I hate this, these translations that, try to, that, that sanitize the word. That word reverence is literally the Greek word phobos, which means fear, to be afraid of, to be scared of. So submitting to one another out of fear for Christ, fear of Christ. Well, what is that? What could that possibly mean? How can we be afraid of Christ? Well, I think where we get we're moving toward an idea of where we have a relationship that we don't want to endanger. Okay? So, it's kind of like if I had like, you know, I let's say me and Daniel, right? Um, Daniel is my son, and so I do not want to do anything that will drive him away. Okay? I want him to I want to be as close to him as possible for however long I'm going to live. I don't want him to move. I mean, if he does, if he does in the course of a job or something, I don't want him to move out of the area just because he can't stand being around his parents. You know, I know people that do that, 
they they get married and then they try to get as far away from their parents as possible you know i don't want to be i don't want that to happen to my relationship with daniel you know and so i'm going to i'm going to keep that in mind when i when i talk to him when i act how i act toward him it, there is a fear but it's not it's not like i'm paralyzed you know with insecurity or anything it's more like I really don't want to do anything to hurt him so that I endanger our relationship. Well, that's the kind of fear it's talking about toward God, okay? You don't want to displease, you don't want God to look at you as a kind of problem child that he's always having to forgive. Now, you may well be. I mean, sometimes I think of myself that way. I'm just a problem child. God's always having to forgive me. But at least you want to give it the old college try. You know, you want to, you want to try to please God, okay? And you may not always do that well. I may not always do that well. But nevertheless, your hope is that you will be, you know, trying to please God, you know, because you don't want to endanger the relationship. And certainly you don't want to do anything that could cause you kind of to drift away off into outer space. The, uh, the chances are that if you, quote, fall away, you will do so slowly and without, almost without noticing. You just kind of drift off and lose interest. And one day you wake up and you say, where is God? I don't, hey, I don't care about God anymore, you know. But anyway, the point is you want to, you, you want, it's like we're, the, the psalm I sang, because he has clung to me, because he has loved me. And that word love means to cling to, right? Uh, you guys remember that from the first week? Some of you might. Anyway, because he has loved me. You guys, okay, anyway, the idea, that, the idea of love there is to, uh, it's not the kind of it's a different word it means to cling to cling to god you know you don't want anything to come between you okay and that and that's the that gets god's attention you know when you're when you're hanging on to him you, you know anyway okay well that's not a, that that sounds really good right but there's something even beyond that okay and this is the this is the end point what I'm about to tell you is the end point. Love casts out fear. This is the this is where you end up. You know, okay, so let me so it says, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected in us, with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. For perfect love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. And so what we find here, this is an amazing passage that, all, that it always kind of struck me. Um, you know, because people talk about the fear of God a lot. I mean, you'll hear that phrase come up again and again. And I used to, because I knew about this passage, I used to kind of really get a little bit um, saddened when people would talk so much about the fear of the Lord. But I can see how, you know, the relational progression is important, you know, and people will be in different places. Maybe they'll be more in, in line of the fear of the Lord at the beginning of wisdom and you know, that kind of thing, or even just sheer outright fear of terror, you know, scared of God. I've been there, you know, even though I knew about perfect love casts out fear, I've been totally afraid of what God was going to do to me, you know, 
for long periods of my life. Uh, but what you wind up with is as you get to know God, as you get to know him and, and know his love, you stop being afraid of him. You know, I, I, I used to use the example of how uh, when I would first meet little kids, they would start crying <laughs> because I'm so big, right? So big and and I'm like a giant to those little kids, right? You know, and they say, wow, I didn't know there really were giants. You know, I didn't know. You know, I thought they were just very... Anyway, so, and um, and then, if but as I get to know them, they start treating me like a giant teddy bear. And they they climb all over me or they, you know, they, you know, they, they hit me or they do all these kind of things, playfully, of course, right, you know. And, and I mean, the fact that, oh, I can hit this giant, you know, oh, that's so much fun, you know. And, and so they, yeah, I, they, and so they, yeah, exactly. No. I actually used to let uh, fifth graders uh, punch me as hard as they could in the stomach when I, that was back in the day when I was buff, okay. So they would, I'd say, come on, hit me right in the stomach as hard as you want. And they would go, oh, oh. They would do it every time. They would hit me. I tried to get them to hit me as hard as they could, you know, because they'd always go like that, you know. Anyway, but um, yeah. So, but those were the those were the my glory days, you know. Anyway, um, so but the point I'm trying to make here, the example I'm giving is, you know, they they're crying because they're so scared of me, and then by the and then they're not scared of me at all. They're climbing all over me and punching me and doing whatever, you know. Well, that's how it is with God. Now, obviously, we don't treat God like a giant teddy bear. But the point is, we start to understand that God is not, is not our enemy in any way, shape, or form. He's totally for us. And our relationship with him, it starts to become clear and transparent and you know, we, we we tell God what we want, what we think, and we're not afraid that he's going to punish us for thinking the wrong thing or wanting the wrong thing or anything like that. Yeah, he may not, he, he may modify, you know, or, you know, he may help change us or, or move us to a better place, but he's not our enemy. You know, he's, he, he's not against you. You know, because originally, you know, there's an adversarial relationship where I don't really trust God. I don't know what he really wants for me. And I may not like it. But then as we go along, we start to say, you know, I know that God wants totally the best for me, more than I do for myself. I will screw up because I don't know what's good for me. But God will not give me a snake when I ask him for a fish. He will not give me a stone when I ask him for bread. You know, he's totally on your side. So, so this is where you want to land to see that perfect love casts out fear. Not that you then go and just treat God flippantly. By, by no means. I mean, love is not flippant, is it? You know, love takes the other person with all with all respect and seriousness, love uh, love allows you to be um, closer and more intimate with somebody by you know not having all these barriers in the way, and so that's where you wind up with God. Okay, and that's where I'd like to. Well, 
Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. So we respond to God's love. And as we experience God's love and are more and more convinced of God's love, we more and more, we less, <laughs> I talked myself into a corner there. Um, we are more and more unafraid of him. We're more and more convinced of his, of his love. 